Hi, this is Scott Snibby, host of A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. My new book, How to Train a Happy Mind, shares the accessible approach to Buddhism familiar to podcast listeners. It features a foreword by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and you can order it right now in print, ebook, or audiobook just about anywhere you buy books. In May, I'm doing two special events in New York City, one with musician and artist Laurie Anderson, and another with DJ Spooky. Both events can also be streamed online. Go to our website at skepticspath.org for more details on the book and tour. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization supported by your donations that keep our podcast free and ad-free. If you've ever enjoyed one of our interviews, lectures, classes, or meditations, please consider hitting pause right now to make a tax-deductible donation to the podcast at skepticspath.org. I'm Scott Snibby, and this is A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment, where we share how everyday people can benefit from Buddhist wisdom to make their lives happier, more meaningful, build stronger relationships, and even help create a better world. In this episode, I have one of my heroes back for a third time, Dr. Jan Willis, an extraordinary Buddhist scholar and practitioner. Today, she's talking with me about the question, are we fundamentally good? Buddhism sometimes seems quite depressing with its focus on suffering and death, but at the core of Buddhism is the idea that in fact, our nature is fundamentally good. Is there any evidence for this? And if so, how do we come to see it? Listen to my interview with Dr. Willis to hear the answers to these questions and whether we might even come to see the good in someone as destructive as Vladimir Putin. Dr. Willis, it's a pleasure having you back on A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment again. You're always such a joyful, wise, and compassionate presence. I'm just so happy you bless the earth with your presence and our podcast with your voice. So thank you. You are so gracious and over the top. Thanks. It's good to be back. So we talked about enlightenment before, and today we're going to talk about Buddha nature. Yeah, absolutely. This question about Buddha nature is, it's, I think it's a real curious one for skeptics because despite how much Buddhism talks about suffering, it has this optimism at its core, this idea that people are fundamentally good at heart. Right. So, so yeah, I'd love to have you explain that in a way that might make sense to people. Like, how could we believe that? How can we prove that that might be true? Right. Well, I think it's probably not as simple as we might think. I think there have been some complications along the way for Buddhist thinkers and Buddhist philosophers, Buddhist authors to actually nail down. Because, as we'll talk about in a minute, there have been three so-called three turnings of the wheel. But let me begin with this quotation. It's from the Arya Tathagata Garbha Sutra. All right, it says, Until you reach the path, you wander in the world with the precious form of the Sugata completely wrapped as in a bundle of rags by things degrading and dirty. Here it is. You have this precious Tathagata. It's wrapped in rags. Unwrap it. Now, 
I think that quote is indicative of the notion, at least in this sutra, that we are already in some sense Buddhas, right? We just don't know it or we don't realize. But we have, it would seem from this quote, the Tathagata, an epithet for the Buddha. So Buddha nature, what is it? And, you know, when did the term come about and what are the people who are using it? Uh, well, it wasn't used often in text until a later period of thought. You know, in terms of the three turnings, the three turnings said the Buddha taught this in the first turning, then he taught this in the second turning, and then he taught this. And the Tathagata Garbha theories are put in this third basket. So you wonder how, if you think about it, that the Buddha first taught a strong emphasis on renunciation and practice that selflessness. And then we had the second turning when, you know, Nagarjuna is talking about shunya, 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 shunyata. There's just emptiness. And some of the sutras, even outside of the Pragnaparamita text, begin with homage to the Buddha, the perfect teacher, he who, who revealed dependent origination. We have that second turning with all the Pragnaparamita text, where the texts are saying emptiness, emptiness, no essence, no reality, no lasting permanent self anywhere. And then after those sets, we have this third turning in which Buddha nature appears. What's that about? Why does it appear in the third turning? So when I was younger, lots younger, I just went to Columbia recently, and that's where I got my PhD almost 50 years ago. I worked on Yogacharan texts, texts that come out of the third turning. So as background for that, I had to, you know, look at the first two turnings and I had to think about how could it be possible that this, this form of Buddhism appears that says, well, there were the earlier turnings, but they weren't the definitive text. They weren't the definitive view. The definitive view has this notion of Buddha nature in it. So we get the optimism at the end. Well, We'd gotten all this pessimism, one could say, in the middle. Emptiness, emptiness, emptiness. How does the positive thing come out? And more than that, the term is equated with nature, our nature. You know, something that's so essential to us. Huh. But we might say, how can it be essential? Because when we think of something's being essential, we think it's lasting permanent. But you just taught Anatman. This was really a concern of Buddhist thinkers. Is this a sneaky way to reintroduce Atman? And when you say Atman, people would often think of that as a soul, right? Like an essence, a solid essence separate from your body that right. travels from lifetime to lifetime, right? So that's what you're saying is you could mistake Buddha nature for that, but that's not what it is. That's not what it is. Sometimes the third turning is usually associated with Yogacharan kinds of texts, which then were mistakenly, by Westerns in particular, 
um, thought to be some kind of idealism because mm-hmm. the yoga chart and texts make a lot of, there's a store consciousness and it's always there. And so when I was studying and writing my dissertation on the yoga chart and text by Asanga, I said, what is he doing? Well, one of the things I thought, I still think Asanga was doing, was trying to help us out, us ordinary beings. It said that Nagarjuna was head, is head of the wisdom lineage, Maitreya's head of the, huh? the compassion lineage. So he's trying to help us out rather than leave us stuck with emptiness, emptiness, everything is emptiness. Asanga tries to give us a place to stand where we can look one direction and see this is all our imagination, illusory, right? And if we turn the other way, we can see what he called the three natures. There's parakalpata, complete imagination, paratantra, which is where we stand sort of in the middle ground so that we can see Paramatta, the most supreme. So that's part of the method. But then he, he offered this variety of ways to understand. So what is it that sees? What is it that realizes ultimate reality? What is it that realizes in life? What would Asanga's definition of Buddha nature be? Ah, so not only Asangas, but lots of other people. I have to say one other thing. So when these Yogacharan texts appeared, early millennium, right? We're moving into second and third century AD. Most of these texts are classified. They're Mayana. We were in the Theravadan phase. And then, then the Garjana comes around beginning of the Millennium, then 200, 300 years after that, we get Sangha and some of the Yogacara texts. Well, there were a group of them, the Samdhinir Moshana text, the Ratnagotra Vibhanga, the Bodhisattva Bhumi. And these texts are called, sort of classed as Yogacara texts. But there are some mm. other texts that really emphasize Tathagata Garba became a synonym for Buddha nature. And they were so different that some Western scholars today, contemporary scholars, want to argue there are four turning. They're so unique. They're so unique. And these are called Tathagata Garba Sutras. Like a Buddha Nature Sutra. Interesting. For people that don't know this term, Yogacara, this is a school that emphasizes the mental aspect of reality, that all we know is filtered through our senses and through our mind. And some people interpret that as saying there's only the mental aspect to reality, but that's not necessarily really the case, right? That was really well done. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I learned a lot from Ben Connolly. He wrote a great book about it, about Vasubandhu's Yogacara texts. Uh-huh. I haven't seen it, but I book it. Okay. So another way of thinking about the three turnings is early on, the so-called Theravadans, and say Hinayanists, that, that group of Shravakas, early Buddhists, who believed strictly in following the Buddha's words, right? One way of looking at the turnings is to say in the early turnings, there was an emphasis on certain dharmas, certain experiential moments. 
actually existent in reality. And so early monks and nuns were to avoid those things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so in avoiding those things, one should renounce the world and concentrate on realizing the selflessness of the self. Just the Atman Naratmiya, the selflessness of the self. So the main meditation hook was, apart from the five aggregates, there is no abiding, permanent, inherently existing Atman, non-self. But in the second turning, that denial of reality became totally pervasive so that Mayanists say there is no self in dharmas, any dharmas, external dharmas, nor is there self or abiding inherent existence in the subjective. Mm. There's Atmanaratmiya as well as Dharmanara. So Shunyata became totally pervasive, voidness, emptiness. All is emptiness. Asanka comes to say, well, what had that bit of knowledge? And this thing developed into Alaya Vigyana, storehouse consciousness. It developed in the mind. Now, another way of saying this, I think, Scott, very simple. Early on, first turning, Theravada monks and nuns concentrated on what the Buddha said initially, ehi pasiki, come and see for yourself. They concentrated on looking inward. They meditated. It was experiential. The Buddha said, come, meditate, see for yourself. It's that middle ground where we don't have a place to stand. In the third turning, Buddhists are again saying, this is how you should look. Mm. This may be all crazy, Scott, but I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to make myself clear here that I've always argued, and I argued in my PhD dissertation that the, that Buddhism has never been about ontologies. It was early on. You know, different schools had different numbers, actual numbers of dharmas that were considered real. You know, as though you could, these are not, these don't count. And then, Pervasive shunyata. Mm? And then, let's look at how these ideas, these notions, and our experience with enlightenment actually happens. So the focus is not only on the subject, it's on how things come to exist and how we experience them. So it's experience again coming around. Mm? And yoga charms are known because they are yogis. The emphasis is on practice again. And it's as though they're saying, once we look at this, we experience a mind that is infinite, that is clear, and that is luminous. This we call Buddha nature. That's what we experience. So I think the experience, it just comes around. 
like Thich Nhat Hanh taught Zen, but it was a kind of mindfulness and Zen. It's like coming back around. It was the original, coming back to the original meditations, looking deeply. I think one way to see Yoga Charans and Alaya Vigyana, the three natures, all of this, is it's a way of explaining in words what the ultimate experience is. So what you're saying is that Buddha nature is really more like an invitation to find an experience through the yogic practice, <laughs> right? That it's not a logical argument for your Buddha nature, but it's an invitation to a meditative experience. Is, is that right? It's an invitation, and it's one that comes with optimism. You probably know this series, no doubt. This is the book by His Holiness the, the Dalai Lama. Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha nature. Right, it's Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha nature. That's a good one. It's a good one, right? Basically, it says the mind itself, emphasis on mind, is the basis for both samsara and nirvana. And Buddha nature says the same thing because Buddha nature says that mind that is now defiled by adventitious emotional kleshas and cognitive kleshas, if we get rid of those defilements, we see our Buddha nature is revealed. Our actual Buddha nature, which is always there. So, Simplest definition of Buddha nature is that we all have this potential. Potential comes up so people would avoid saying it's our essence. It's an eternal thing that's there. Hmm. But they still want to say it's there because you experience it. It's true. Hopefully that makes people curious. I think it's very empirical, right? It's not a logical argument. I think that Buddhism is more empirical based on the empirical experience that there are people who have experienced it, people like us maybe touch it a little bit, <laughs> you know, in our meditation sometimes, and it's very encouraging when everything drops out and yet you feel so wonderful, <laughs> you know, letting go of your... Isn't it? It's always blissful. It's always joyous. And it's a reminder that this is what awaits you. It's encouragement. This is what awaits you. Not, not as though you're after that. But this is your true nature. This bliss, this clarity, this awareness, Zokchen folk, clarity, luminosity, purity. That's our ultimate nature. I love hearing your experience. But there are recently, I think there's been a lot more sort of negative views of human nature than positive, certainly over in the kind of rational era. Although the capacity, the potential for human beings to be good has certainly been been admitted. But recently, there are actually scientists studying this instead of arguing philosophically or theologically. And there's a couple of books. I don't know if you've read these books like Born to be Good by Dasher Keltner or Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Bob Sapolsky or Rick Hansen's Buddha's Brain. Oh, yeah, there you go, that one. Uh, that's the only um, one of those three, you know. Yeah, so they all make, I think, quite compelling arguments from scientific experiments, especially evolutionary psychology, that we do have this capacity for good. Rick Hansen is really cute when I asked him about this. I said, is there any evidence for Buddha nature in nature? And he said, if you look at creatures besides humans, like a cat, for example, uh -huh. if they have their basic needs met, 
they're just like in bliss. <laughs> you know, they don't sit there and worry and get anxious or start hoarding things. They're just happy. They're sitting there purring on the couch, enjoying being pet. And he said, maybe that, maybe just that, the fact that we see animals and when they're not stressed, their resting nature when they're not stressed is just pure contentment. And that we have that capacity too. I mean, it's funny to use animals to argue for well, human capacity I for read, good. But what I, I agree about cats. But, you know, all <laughs> yeah. the studies that have been on elephants, for example, and how caring they are, or on whales, and what good mothers they are. I don't think that the science is proving, I don't know what word it would be. Are they proving goodness? Or are they proving that, as I remember His Holiness saying, science, early, early childhood, proves that we're capable of having that we have sort of innately empathy with one another. We have a kind of empathy, and these things can be expanded, right? We have a, a drive to care for others. And I think that's been indicated in modern studies of animals, elephants and whales, for example. We care for each other. Every living thing does it seem to have. Maybe the words are wrong. I don't think it's so much goodness as it is empathy, care, and, you know, a child cares about another. If its needs are met, it can be generous with another one that's there. They come with it, you know, and that's marvelous that we have this instinct to mount good behavior, you know, you might say. I don't know if that's we're innately good or we're innately social and we're innately empathetic which I think are re yeah. really good qualities. And the science does back that up. Like in Dasher Keltner's research, he writes about that when you measure people very precisely, giving them certain social situations, their first impulse in a social situation is to help mm. for the vast majority of people, you know, despite the sad contraindications, you know, we hear of from time to time. We hear of almost every day with this gun violence, for example. And we wonder how can that happen? There seems to be, in some beings, an idea to do just the opposite, to yeah. not care for beings. That actually leads well into the question of how do we recognize this in ourselves? I think a lot of people listening, I, sadly, I might say even perhaps a majority of people listening might not see this in themselves, see this fundamental goodness or even potential for good. What, what would you say to someone about recognizing and developing that quality for themselves? Well, I would say those of us in the U.S., I mean, I don't know about Europe and other Western countries, many of us in the U.S., and I don't just mean black people. I guess it's been a couple of decades now, and Sharon Salzberg had this conversation with His Holiness, and His Holiness was saying, you know, we base this practice on the love we have for our mothers. <laughs> Sharon said, well, People in the West don't have the same kinds of feelings towards their parents that you might have your whole and he couldn't believe it. I'm like, what? No, no, can this be so? Yes. You know, we have all sorts of issues, mental, you know, we have to see therapists for. I'm sorry, I'm jumping around here, but I think, you know, the Christian verse, Matthew where Jesus is being interviewed by the legal scholar and the legal scholar trying to catch him up for teaching, you know, on the Sabbath. 
And he says, well, what do you say is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you, what sayest thou? <laughs> he turned the question around. And the lawyer priest says, well, it's to love God, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy mind, all thy soul. And then he adds, he knows the law too. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So we often think, I think a number of us, a lot of people think that's easier said than done. Is that the golden rule? Yes. But not many people really feel moved by that because we might not feel like it's easy to love our neighbors. Some people have justifiable reasons for that. Some perhaps not justifiable reason didn't happen this life that didn't happen this year a neighbor but i don't think i can come up with love for that person people aren't moved by just that saying and one of the reasons they're not moved by it is because it's difficult to love themselves i'm trying to get back mm. to that one we have some issues in the states with actually loving ourselves in other words feelings of unworthiness. I mean, when I met Lama Yeshe, I was dragging a whole bag of them coming from the segregated Jim Crow South. You know, I thought I was one of the most unworthy human beings around because I'd been told that every day of my life by my surroundings, not by my family, but when I ventured out. So there's a lot to overcome to feel, you know, pure and capable and limitless and all that. That's why I found Tantra. Because Tantra, one of its basic principles is, let's transform these negative images of ourselves that we constantly entertain. If we're looking at our thoughts, you know, we're having regrets about this. We're having anxiety about what's coming. We never just sit in the present moment and say, gee, present moment, wonderful moment. Let's stick not on with that. Feels good to be here now, alive and capable, right? But Tantra says, rather than have all these negative images of ourselves, let's replace that with a really positive image, a deity, a yidam, that makes us feel empowered, capable, compassionate. And so I found that method for myself very attractive. And how would you translate that into advice for someone? I mean, your journey is amazing. And we, we talked about that first time we spoke. And so in awe of, of your life and the transformation you, you made for yourself. For a no, an ordinary person feeling some of those things, a sense of low self-worth, messages from outside telling them they're unworthy, what path would you advise to them? You know, you say Tantra, but that's, <laughs> I'm not sure what that it would even mean to, you know, someone who's not a Buddhist or unfamiliar with it. Is there any practical advice you would give to someone on that journey of trying to first feel that sense of self-respect and self-worth, uh, self-love? Martin Luther King called it dignity. When he talked to junior high schoolers, he said, don't give up your dignity. Hi. This is a different way of entering the room now. You have dignity, and that's inborn, he'd say, to the Buddha nature, uh, awakening dignity. 
which is the same thing. You know, you can move in the world with a sense of ease because you're at ease with yourself. You feel content because you know that deep down, this is the encouragement that Buddha nature offers, that if you could peel all of those layers away, and they're adventitious layers, they're things that we told ourselves over all these years, countless times a day, those aren't permanent. Those are illusions we tell ourselves. And they're delusions. And delusions can be wiped away, revealing our actual Buddha nature. Before I knew anything, Lama Yeshi would say to me, daughter, you're pure. <laughs> I go, pure? Pure? Mission? No way. Thank you so much, but that's kind, but slowly, slowly, over time, through examples, he was talking about something and I'd add a thing and he'd say, you quit, you know, just these little things that I had been missing. So that kind of encouragement comes from outside, but we could just as well post it on our bathroom mirrors. You know, you're good. You're pure. Your nature is pure. Maybe we should write that and put it on our bathroom windows, you know. At least we could smile to begin the day. But then at some point, I think, be good to make in contact with some kind of method that will help you to know that these Tatagata Garba things, they end with, why was this text written? <laughs> it says so clearly, if we don't hear these things, then we're prone to discouragement. If we don't hear these things, sometimes we become arrogant and we consider others inferior. Sometimes if we don't hear these positive things, we get distorted conceptions and incorrectly hold to adventitious defilements being truly existent. If we don't hear these things, we denigrate our own true nature. If we don't hear these positive things, we become self-centered. So it says, in this way and for this reason, Yogacharan authors like Maitreya and Asanga have taught the notion of Buddha nature. It's beautiful, yeah. And these messages, the more you just tell yourself these messages, the more they come true. But it's so helpful to have someone telling you from outside. That's the beauty of having a teacher like Lama Yeshe. The love you feel and the... Sometimes I feel like it's hard to be any better of a person than people expect you to be. <laughs> it's really quite another gap to be a person of dignity and compassion in an awful environment that is telling you the worst about yourself. And this is an interesting sort of contradiction to Buddhism because so much of the science says our relationships are the most critical thing to leading a happy, dignified life and having people that see you for your best and keep telling you, you know, that you're your best. Have a dog. No, I'm serious, right? You know, your dog loves you unconditionally, right? And maybe because you feed it, I doubt it. There's more relationships happen. So the way your dog thinks you actually are, because your dog thinks you're the best. And you are. Who's to say you are or you aren't? I think it's one of those realizations all of us have as we move through our life and different jobs and relationships that 
in one relationship, you're the worst. Someone thinks you're the worst person in the world. And then in the next one, maybe with your dog <laughs> or your partner, your child, whatever, they think you're the greatest, yep. just the greatest person in the world. So which story do you want to listen to and which one's the most beneficial for your mind? Yes. And Yogacara used that. It says, you know, you look at a pool of water. For the fish, they welcome it. For the person who's uh, really thirsty, they welcome it. For certain kinds of beings in the universe, it's filled with pus. So they're saying there is no true identity in the names that we call things. Their true essence isn't in that because they appear differently to different states of mind. Oh, yeah. Easier said than done, but there are practices for this. Yeah. But that's very important, especially today, because the rise of identity politics has so much good to it and so much power, mm -hmm. but it is also very reifying and solid, and it sometimes can make you feel more separate than less. I, I wonder if you can talk about that, because what you're saying is you need this incredible flexibility and fluidity to steer your mind toward the best nature. But how does that work with strong labels about who we are, even ones about our gender identity, our racial identity, and spiritual identity, political identity. Oh boy, you ask difficult questions. These are real. Uh, these are these are the heart of the matter. Um, I am myself as a black Buddhist uh, in an interesting position here on self and selflessness. It's like. Um, it's like the stories of Mila, the stories of Naropa, but I'm, I'm venturing back into guru disciple things in order to say that different people need different things. I know we're talking about identity politics, but Naropa thought too much of himself. You know, he thought he was fine just as he was. So his teacher had to give him a number of shock treatments so that he finally asked, What's the matter with me? And so his teacher told him, right, think a little bit more about compassion than you do about your superiority. And for Milarepa, I'm more like, I think, because he felt so, there was a time when he was so self-pitying, loathing, because he had in fact committed terrible karma. So the teacher for him has to build his confidence. And that took a long time, and it took him building those 12 towers during those 12 arduous years when Marpa wouldn't let anybody help him, right? Because he had to know that he had the capacity to do harm in the same way he has the capacity to do good, and that he might have thought his nature was totally, you know, shameful and pitiful, Actually, his nature is strong and powerful. So identity politics tends to reify a self. So in that sense, we can say it's dangerous. But at certain times and in certain contexts, it's necessary. It's necessary to have a strong sense of self, right? And the good thing about gurus is they, they know what you need to get tweaked, to help you unpack. So I think for some, a strong sense of self, we don't have to say we're not black Buddhist. We can say, heck, we're black Buddhist. You know, 
with some power behind it. And yeah, I claim that. There's a strength there. That's necessary. In those stories, certain things had to come in balance before any kind of transmission could happen. So before any kind of transformation can happen, one has to realize what is true and what is necessary, what is actually happening. So I think what you're saying is that like a strong sense of identity can really promote dignity and power. Absolutely. And then once you feel that, then you might mix in the fluidity, the flexibility, the dependent origination to see how that is, that's not solid. That's also not limiting, constraining, separating solid. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that in part. And I'm also saying what His Holiness always says about that, or Shantideva says, we have to remember the practice of equanimity. So we might need to, to come up to dignity and feeling content in order to not feel inferior. Whereas certain people might need to not feel so superior. So different methods. So that compassion becomes genuine. Compassion is about realizing our equality with others. So that we know that they suffer. They suffer too, just like us. And they want to avoid it, just like us. But we have to start on an even plane. I see, yeah. So you're saying that this kind of identity, identity politics is a, a, a technique that can be used for equanimity. So again, for anyone who's not familiar, there are these stages towards developing love and compassion. And one of the first ones is equanimity, where you just try to feel that everyone deserves happiness. No one wants to suffer. From different points of view, they're beloved and also they're hated and so on. But we all fundamentally have equal rights and equal potential. And that these tools of identity can help if you're feeling less to bring you up to a place of equality. And you do use a different tool if you felt superior <laughs> to others. Yeah. Yes. I like that. I like that. I like the way you explain it. And so what do you think? You brought up this awful example of the mass shooters. In Buddhism, we are really taught, and I think sometimes we really see in our meditation every day, that there is a fundamental goodness, even in people like that, even in Vladimir Putin, there are types of people doing horrible actions in the world. How do you do that? That's that's mm. very, very difficult and confusing oh, yeah. I, yeah. To, for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Buddhism is big enough to hold that, and certainly other religious traditions as well. And I think the way you get into it comes out of, uh, when I think about it, social justice of this current mm -hmm. age. You think of like somebody like Brian Stevenson, right? Who, who founded the uh, Equal Justice Initiative, right? What does Brian Stevenson say about some of the people he's seen in courtrooms? He says, you are not the worst act you ever commit. That's love. That's love. And that's reality. So many people can't get to feeling okay with themselves because they think they're totally identified with the worst they ever committed. Mm -hmm. But mother loves you, wife loves you, sister loves you, cause why? Because you're lovable. 
That's love. When he says you're not the worst thing that you ever did, oh, my heart breaks. And that speaks to all of us. That's It's not just for violent criminals, yeah. Exactly, to all of us and to violent criminals. Violent criminals, we need to work on that. But it should always come from a place of love. It should always come from a place of recognition that you're not the worst thing you ever did. The nuns who were tortured by the Chinese soldiers say, I pray for the darkness of ignorance to lift because I know that the same hands that torture me go home and hug a wife and pick up a child and caress them. I know that. That's a big sense. That's a broad sense we should have. Yeah. And what would you say to someone who says, I'm having trouble seeing the Buddha nature in Vladimir Putin? <laughs> I can't understand it. Just as it exists in us, it exists in him. He loves yeah. somebody and somebody loves him. He's lovable in a certain sense to someone. All is never lost on any living being. What we see is not all of them. And Martin Luther King used to teach them. What we see, even in, an hate, in a hate-filled person, perhaps wearing robes coming towards us. What we see, Martin Luther King said, is not all of who they are. Mm. So he was using logical reasonings, you know, and, and he was just trying to tell us that if we just pause a minute and see human beings as human beings, we might realize that what we see as a hate-filled moment does not represent all of them. Now, it doesn't mean we want to say, hey, I like the way you put that hate on. <laughs> no, it's not that. But it's, it's recognizing that this moment, at this time, motivated by this negative emotion, is not all of who another human being I think that's really freeing. Yeah, it's generous and it's wise. It's just true. That's the thing. You, there's part of us that just doesn't want to accept that. Mm. They want to think only of the bad. You know, I look at young, young children the world over and I see them as so full of promise. That's what makes my heart break because this poor child in the Bantustans had some brilliance that we'll never know about. So I'm thinking there could be one day, hopefully there will be, a recognition that we're all equal. This is the beloved community, a society in which we're all valued for the talents we bring, where we feel safe and where we feel loved. That's what the beloved community is, I think. And uh, to me, that's a beautiful vision. That's very beautiful. It's very beautiful. And hopefully conversations like ours help move us just the tiniest bit <laughs> closer to that idea. We all have Buddha nature. We're all lovable. The first definition of Buddha nature is we all have the potential of reaching our best, ultimate, filled with clarity, 
filled with wisdom self. And is there anything else you'd like to add in talking about Buddha nature? Well, I think what I would add is that for some people, even for some scholars, or mainly for some scholars, the idea of Buddha nature coming so late in Buddhist thought history uh, might seem like a contradiction. But it's there from the beginning. You know, there's that luminous mind, which is that same, I think, very close luminous mind at the end. Even though in the later traditions of Tibetan Buddhism, for example, different schools describe it differently. So in one, it's clear light mind. In another, it's Mahamudra. But I think they're all getting it a sim- very similar meditative experience with the nature. It's there. So I think it's uh, true that people have experienced it and it's in a way foundational and it's about qualities, not permanent self, but the qualities of our enlightened mind. But the nature is a fact, I think, and it's meant to encourage us to practice. Not to say, oh, we're all Buddhas, which they used to say in the 70s and 80s. We're all Buddhas anyway. Why should we practice? Well, because we don't know that. But we haven't realized it. And so we have to go through all this hard work to we can say, ah. Yeah, Robert Thurman puts it a funny way. You probably heard him say, once you become enlightened, you realize that you were always yep. <laughs> enlightened, which is is a very confusing statement, but. Um, yes. We shouldn't mistake the idea that we're already a Buddha and we should just go and do whatever yeah, we feel like doing. Not free license to do anything. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. Dogen knew that. Dogen, the great uh, 12th century Japanese founder of Soto, knew that as well, that, you know, he he experienced it. And then he, <laughs> he realized, oh, I made all these trips, you know, from Japan to China, you know, these arduous trips. And I practiced so hard. You know, and now I see it was always there. Well, you have to sort of go through it. Otherwise, you miss it. I mean, it is there, but otherwise it doesn't make an impact. Yeah, you hear that over and over again. I think Jitsunma Tenzin Palma in that book, Cave in the Snow, she said after her 12 years, she was asked, what did you learn? And she's, in a way, nothing, you know, that there was nothing. (laughs) There was actually nothing to learn. (laughs) Like. But it was just always there. It was just always there to find. You just are quiet enough. But people are still happy when they find it. You know, you find a jewel that you didn't know was right there all along. You still are happy when you find it. Oh, yeah. No, it's a beautiful idea that it's there for the finding. If you just look for it in the right way with the right instructions. Thank you so much, Dr. Willis. It's a a pleasure and inspiring and illuminating your combination of scholarship with just joy and direct experience is quite unique. So thank you so much. I always enjoy talking with you, even though I go through this flurry of activity, trying to get ready to talk with you, finding quotes and there, there's an ear there. Really, it's the conversation that I, I enjoy. So I thank you for giving me that, that opportunity. Appreciate Likewise. it. Likewise. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. You too, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for joining me in my conversation with Dr. Jan Willis. You can learn more about her teachings and work on her website, 
at jnwillis.org. This podcast depends on its donors to stay on the air, and we appreciate all the donations that people have given to support our mission. Please consider going to skepticspath.org right now to help keep these interviews and meditations coming to you every week, free and ad-free. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization, so all your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. We even accept Bitcoin. To keep up with our podcast, classes, and my upcoming book, How to Train a Happy Mind, sign up for our newsletter on our website, join our private meditation discussion group, or follow us on social media, where we go by the name Skeptic's Path. We wish you a wonderful day.